want to invite you to open up your Bibles to the book of Joshua in the Old Testament. Joshua chapter 1. Joshua is right after the book of Deuteronomy. We're going to look at Joshua chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. I'll go ahead and read that first. These are the words of God. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do all according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. The book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Let's pray. Our Father and God, we understand from the scriptures that this world belongs to you and that you intend to reconcile all things to yourself. We also understand that in principle you have indeed reconciled all things by the blood of your Son, Christ our Lord. We ask, Father, that your global vision for discipling the nations would become a reality through our efforts. We wish to take the land, to proclaim your gospel, and watch your enemies fall before you in worship. We ask for your blessing now as we open up your word. So open up our ears. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Today marks an important time in the life of our very, very young church. This is our first official Lord's Day gathering, and as important as this is, we also know that our getting together today for worship isn't the only thing that should concern us. In other words, we aren't to leave here today and think this is all God wants us to do. We do wish to gather and worship the Lord in a way that honors Him, in a way that he requires. But we do not believe that our worship is solely reserved for Sunday morning. We have the opportunity to do what we do on Monday morning and Tuesday morning and so on. And because we're not pietists, we must view our entire lives as an act of worship. Do all things to the glory of God, even on Monday morning. This is important to know because the reason for the existence of this assembly, this fellowship is so that we can equip people to press the crown rights of King Jesus into all areas of life. Jesus doesn't suddenly become king on Sunday morning and then Monday through Saturday Satan takes over kingship of the world. No, Jesus Christ is Lord. Caesar is not. Satan has been plundered. Jesus owns the world and what you do with your life and all your life matters. All of Christ for all of life. That is our mantra. That's what we believe, and that's what we long to see take place in this nation. Because Sunday is important, and because Monday through Saturday is just as important for the mission, 
We want everyone to see the entirety of their lives as an integral part to the mission of God. Whenever starting a new fellowship, a new assembly like this, it's important to know why we are doing this. It's also important to know all the wrong motivations for doing this, too. We are not planting this assembly we call Cross and Crown Church so that the entirety of our focus is putting together this Sunday morning experience that rivals Disney. We are not planting this assembly because we're trying to provide religious goods and services comparable to the church down the street. We are not planting this assembly because we somehow think that we are the only ones that get it perfectly right, either. We are not planting this assembly because it's, it's going to be about one person or about the power of a group of elders um, with political egos and whatnot. We are not planting this assembly because we want to play church and play it differently. We are not planting Cross and Crown Church because we want to get a fog machine, lights, and a worship pastor with skinny jeans to help us feel better about ourselves. Jesus Christ has planted us here in this time, in this place, because Jesus Christ wants and desires to take this land. Jesus Christ has planted us here in this place, in this time, because Jesus Christ desires to take this land, which is why we're not a 501c3 organization, which is why we're not actually going to purchase a fog machine, though we joke about it regularly, which is why we are not going to spend uh, all of our days trying to give people this um, stellar worship experience on Sunday that's filled with do-goodism and be-goodism. We are gospel people, and we believe all of the gospel of the kingdom of God. So this message is called Take the Land, and so I invite you to look at Joshua 1 with me for a moment, and then we'll go from there. We learn for the first two verses that Moses has died, and Joshua, who is Moses' assistant, is giving, he's, he's given basically the prophetic mantle, this prophetic mantle to lead the people of Israel. Flip back one page in your Bible to the end of Deuteronomy 34. I want to look at verses 9 to 12. I'm going to just go ahead and read those to give you some context. Verse 9, And Joshua the son of Nun was full of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him. So the people of Israel obeyed him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. And there has not risen, arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, none like him for all the signs and the wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, and for, the, for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all of Israel." So the book, Joshua is a connecting book. It's bridging the gap between the Pentateuch, you know, the first five books of the, of the Bible, and basically the rest of the Old Testament. Joshua stands next to Deuteronomy for several reasons, but most notably because Joshua is carrying the torch that started with the first five books of Moses. If you recall, Moses was not allowed to enter the promised land. Um, he because he threw, uh, I guess you could call a temper tantrum. So kids, be careful when you take a stick to a rock. Um, instead of, of, of entering, God called Joshua to take Israel into the land. And notice in verse 3 of Joshua 1, that God has given every place that Joshua walks upon to Israel, quote, just as I promised Moses. 
Um, verse 4 lays out the terrain, the boundaries of the promised land, and it's here in verse 5 that we pick up our text. Let's go ahead and look at that again. Verse 5. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened, and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Before we kind of unpack this um, some more, I want to observe basically five things, and we'll kind of run through those very quickly. First one, notice the phrase, be strong and courageous, appears in verses 6, 7, and 9. So, truly prophetic ministry isn't for effeminate cowards. Truly prophetic ministry isn't for effeminate cowards. The prophets had spines. That's the first observation, be strong and courageous. Second thing, a reference to God's promise of inheritance is found in verse 6, which is basically a subtle reminder of God's covenant. God had promised Abraham that he will have descendants and land. And we know that in Jesus, all of that is fulfilled. Third observation, notice the insistence upon the commandments of God. Verse 7, be careful to do according to all the law. Do not turn away from it, the law, verse 7. Um, this book of the law, verse 8. Meditate on it day and night, verse 8. All that is written in it, the law, right, in it, verse 8. He says in verse 9, have I not commanded you? So the authority of God is presupposed in everything. The authority of God is presupposed in everything. Fourth observation from the text. Take careful notice of the covenantal sanctions in verse 7. He says, Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. Verse 8, After meditate on it and doing it, for then you will make your way prosperous and you will have good success. Okay, So obedience, obedience to the commands of God leads to economic prosperity, among other things. Um, and we must distinguish ourselves from the false social gospel, or rather the false prosperity gospel, um, that is different. We are covenantal prosper, uh, prosperity people. So when we obey Christ, he brings his blessings. Fifth observation from the text. Note the promises of verses 5 and 9 that God is with them and won't forsake them. God was present with Moses. He remains present with Joshua. Now, the reason I'm pointing out these five things is because each of them is found in the Great Commission of Matthew 28, either explicitly or implicitly. Okay, so those five things found here in Joshua, this is the Great Commission 1.0. Jesus's was 2.0, in a manner of speaking. I'm convinced that when Jesus gave the Great Commission to his disciples, I think he had this text in mind, along with the Dominion Mandate, the Dominion Covenant in Genesis 2. The reason, of course, is because Joshua is the precursor, the example set before us of what it looks like to take the land. Now, lest I be misquoted on the Internet, and the Internet have its heyday, 
I want to add that our taking of the land is done by conquering hearts with the gospel, not picking up pitchforks and torches, okay? Though there may be a place for that. Just to be clear, this is bottom-up reformation in society, not top-down authoritarian or totalitarianism. This is bottom-up reformation. Go ahead and flip to the New Testament real quick to Matthew chapter 28, or you can see it in the bulletin there at the top of the second page. Matthew chapter 28. I'm going to go ahead and read that, verses 18 to 20. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of what? All nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them, note that, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The Great Commission is our task, our assignment. When Jesus gave the disciples the task of taking the land, of discipling the nations of the earth, he did it because he expected it to happen. Don't let that observation slip under your your notice. He expected it to happen. Jesus didn't give the church programs to administer so, so as to keep everyone looking busy. No, he gave us a clear commission. We are to take the land. We are to unashamedly declare the gospel of God and summon all peoples everywhere to come to this king and be forgiven. Stop resisting. It's futile anyway. That's our message. The text says that we are to make disciples, and part of that making disciples is teaching them to obey the law word of God. Okay? So... Pietists tend to just, you know, we're, we're just to make converts, and so everything's driven by this mentality. If we can just get people to say yes to Jesus and pray a prayer, they're in, and we're good to go. That's not what Jesus emphasizes. He emphasizes the teaching people to obey God. Now, just to be clear up front, and, and please hear me out, especially Cross and Crown Church, we are not taking dominion. Okay, we are not taking dominion. That's not what we're arguing for here. We are we are not trying to rally the troops so that we can take dominion. Jesus Christ has dominion. We're just putting things in the order Jesus would prefer. The living room is his. We're just sort of moving furniture around. This is important because of what we see in Joshua and here in Matthew. The authority belongs to King Jesus. Okay, the authority belongs to. To King Jesus. Because Jesus died and rose from the dead, and because he is now seated at the right hand of the Father, he now possesses complete and utter authority. There isn't some fraction or semblance of authority out there in the universe that Jesus doesn't possess. He says, All authority in heaven and on earth. Note the on earth part, because some people forget about that part. He has complete and utter authority. And because he has outright authority, his law takes supremacy. The government of Christ is not some sort of draconian measure to keep everyone from having a good time. Christ's government is a kindly rule, one with trenchant boundaries and wonderful promises. It isn't something in vogue right now in our blood-guilty nation. But Christ's kingdom doesn't care about the feelings of snowflakes and secular humanists. This is incredibly important for us to know as we begin this great work here in Northern Virginia. 
Um, Joshua didn't come up with his plan on his own, okay? Um, he, was, he was one of the spies with Caleb, if you remember, uh, who gave true testimony. And so he's been around for a while now, but, but he, he wasn't sitting in his tent, bored one day, and he kind of came up with this plan, okay? It was God who appointed Joshua for the task, and it was God who gave him the ability to carry it out. Okay, church, you have the ability to carry out the discipling of the nations. Why? Because it's not your plan. It's not your concocted, cute, wonderful plan. It's Jesus's plan. So much of church ministry is built on personalities and programs. So much of our churchianity is centered on the wrong things. Listen, no one is given the gift of regeneration so they can live however they please. No one is given the gift of regeneration so that they can live however they please. They are given a new heart so that they can please God, not themselves. Joshua was God's servant. We are God's servants. And this mission before us must be couched inside the authority of King Jesus. One of the things that I want to focus on here in this passage of Joshua, you can flip back there if you're not there, is the command of obedience. Okay, I want to focus on that. The command of obedience. What the church of Jesus Christ needs more than ever is godly obedience in our homes, in our churches, in our own personal lives, and ultimately in this nation. What we need is not more clever methods of pragmatism, but rather obedience that is motivated by gospel-filled, gospel-saturated, gospel-infected hearts. We do not need to huddle up here and try to figure out ways to convince unregenerate people how cool we are. That's not what we need. What we need most is obedience, obedience that stems from regenerate hearts who wish to please God. Over and over in this passage, the Lord requires obedience. He demands it. He demands it. He he didn't say to Joshua, you know, I want you to do this, and if along the way you feel like obeying me, that would be fantastic. No, he says, you must obey this. Be bold and courageous and be careful to do according to all the law. What we need more than anything is individuals, families, and churches that obey the commands of God. Perhaps a, a quick little excursus is in order. God's requirement of obedience from his people is not legalism, okay? God's requirement of obedience from his people is not legalism. Legalism is improperly believing that obedience to the law of God somehow merits you salvation. The problem, (laughs) we'll go here. The problem with the Pharisees wasn't that they were zealous for the law. That was not the problem. They lacked regeneration. They lacked new hearts. And they were zealous for non-law. Okay? They, they actually they didn't hold to the Bible. They held to the traditions of, of man. And that's what Jesus was getting at in the Sermon on the Mount. He didn't, you know, he didn't come to abolish the law. He came to, to fulfill it, to bring it to completion, and to bring it to its appropriate means and, and, and ends as well. He didn't come to set it aside. He came for it. Listen, <clears throat> faith sees the law of God as something God demands from me. And therefore, in response, I submit to God's authority. But notice the first word of that sentence I just said, faith. Faith is a gift from God. 
Joshua's faith, the disciples' faith, indeed our faith, is a gift from God, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. That's not something we muster up inside ourselves. Faith is from God. And, and only those who are first regenerated can obey God rightly. So, so faith sees the law of God, the commands of God, the rule and reign of Christ as something that God demands from me. It's not a suggestion. He demands it from his people. And therefore, in response, I submit to God's authority. True faith isn't lawless. True faith is not lawless. True faith isn't opposed to the law and commands of God. It is wedded to the law of God. Okay, I'll say it again. True faith isn't opposed to the law of God. It is wedded to the law of God. We receive the commands of God as coming from the most holy throne room of God. And because of that, we treasure them. Where do the commands of God come from? They're not, they're not suggestions from politicians. They're not suggestions from the humanists. It is from God. And when we view it that way, we can treasure God's commands. The only person who can treasure God's commands is the person whose heart has been filled with the Holy Spirit. Because conveniently, evangelicals forget that the Holy Spirit has written the law on our hearts. The Holy Spirit didn't come into your heart and then negate everything Right, so we don't need the Old Testament anymore. That's that's Old Testament. We're in the new. We're New Testament. We're not New Testament Christians, FYI. We are Bible Christians and all of the Bible. But the only person who can treasure God's commands is the person whose heart has been filled by the Holy Spirit. The more we see the commands of God as stemming from the grace of God, the more apt we are to obey them. Okay? The more we see the commands of God as stemming from the grace of God, the more apt we are to obey them. You see, in the gospel, you are moved from a position of covenant breaker to covenant keeper. When you came to Christ, or more precisely, when Jesus the Mack truck hit you, you died to the law, meaning this, your rebellious heart stopped being condemned by the law. Your iniquity was covered by Christ's blood, and you stopped shaking your fist. You stopped living. Um, Christ died so that you could die. When we're in Christ, we die with him. We're buried with him. We are raised with him. We are seated with him. But don't miss the very first part. You must die with him first. So you move from a status of law-breaking covenant violator to law-keeping covenant obeyer. That's what Christianity looks like. That's when you meet Jesus so we, we've, we tend to leave that out when we say, we'd like to invite Jesus and in, we want you to invite Jesus into your heart. And what we fail to see is that invitation is death. Come die, right? That, that's what, the, when Jesus said, take up his cross, that wasn't like a cute thing to throw in a mug. You have to die. You must die with him in order to be raised with him. When we look at a text like Joshua, then compare it to Matthew 28, we then start to think about how we have a hand in the very same mission. Um, But doing that, we might be tempted to think for a moment that the the task is far too complicated. Disciple the nations? That that can't happen. Have 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 you watched the news lately, right? That's what we might be tempted to think. Like the other spies and numbers who scouted out the land and they they thought themselves to be grasshoppers compared to the giants, so the church today has seen herself as a measly fly compared to the secular humanist elite. 
Make no mistake, we are up against some fairly large opponents. The secularists have seemingly captured the media, have captured education, and have most definitely captured politics to, to some extent. Humanism is the religion of the hour, and it doesn't appear to be waning. We live in a nation that continues to murder its children and despise the family. We live in a nation where the church has continued to send their covenant children to the priests of Baal at the government school and, and still wonder why they're coming back as pagans who quote Plato. Furthermore, we live in a nation which we are told to disciple that has trampled the law word of God and sought its own way. And we might be tempted to think, is there anything we could possibly do? What can we do? We're, the church is getting railroaded. We, how do we respond? Do we just sit around and wait for God to zap us off the planet? That's the, the approach of some evangelicals. Listen, there is something to be said for just one man having the audacity to obey God's commands. There's something to be said for just one man or one woman having the audacity. It's like a novelty anymore, right? Obey God. Maybe we should. It's gotten bad. We should probably think about obeying God. That's how bad it's gotten. The audacity to obey God's command. That's all it takes. It took, it took just 11 disciples to utterly dismantle the Roman imperial cult in a matter of 300 years. That's it. Northern Virginia needs Christ, and it needs him in a desperate possible way, in the most desperate way. The, the problem is not yet, excuse me, the world is not yet discipled. And so then the question is, how shall we then live? We need to get our terminology in order as well as our philosophy. So we're going to work on that in the next few weeks. But this morning, what I want to start with is this. Do not, do not despise small beginnings, friends. Do not despise small beginnings. Okay, God does not despise small beginnings. He does not look down upon our pitiable state and say, well, cross and crown, gee whiz, because God has a southern draw. These folks here in this basement, I can't possibly do anything with them. Nonsense. Do not despise small beginnings, for such is the kingdom of God. Listen, Jesus Christ conquers nations with a mustard seed. Jesus Christ conquers nations with a mustard seed. He doesn't need numbers. He doesn't need critical mass. He does need but one faithful man. That's it. Think about Noah. Think Joshua. Think Moses. Think Jesus, who is the only faithful man. And nor does, he, nor does he want us to think that our task is too big. Uh, you know, regarding uh, re reading passages like this and, and, and somehow it gives us like syllabus shock, right? When you first college court, oh my word, there's so much work to do. We'll never get it all done. And you get overwhelmed and you read passages like this in Matthew 28 and you're just overwhelmed. Don't, don't do that. We, we shouldn't look around the world and see all of its petulant impudence and be scared. God commanded Joshua several times, be bold, be courageous, have a stinking backbone. And that's the problem anymore, isn't it? We spend so much try time trying to figure out what crazy Obergefell thing is going to happen next. Why is it that the world 
around us isn't sitting around scratching their heads saying, what in the world are the Christians going to do next? (laughs) The crux of this passage and the crux of all of it is our need to be faithful to God and obedience to God. The law word of God must take supremacy over the Christian who wishes to please God. The law word of God must take supremacy over the Christian who wants to please God. No more bloviating nitwits prattling on about their favorite sports team. Get in the word. Know the word. Know God. Know something about God. Obey Christ Jesus. That's what we're here for. There is no taking of the land if there is no obedience to King Jesus. The Lord will either have all of our obedience or he will have none of it. There simply is no halfway Christian. There is no obedience to one or two commands over here and then a complete disregard for the rest of them. You either take all of Christ or you have none of him. You either have all of Christ for all of life or you have none of Christ for none of your life. There is no halfway thing. Obedience to the authority of Christ Jesus is the key to victory, friends. And that doesn't mean we are fighting for victory in a larger sense. It means we are fighting from victory. Jesus Christ died and rose again. The victory is secured. The tomb is empty. What in the world are you worried about? Behold your Savior, Cross and Crown Church. Behold the man who was spat upon, cursed at, beaten, and murdered on the cross. Behold the man that you and I put on the cross. The man who came to save us, yet we knew him not. Behold the damp tomb where our Savior was buried after we murdered him, and yet death would not have victory. Behold the risen and ascended Christ, the ruler of the nations, the Lamb of God, the Lion of Judah, the King of kings, and the Lord of lords. Be strong and courageous. The victory is his. He has won the battle. What are you waiting for? Let's take it. Let's take the land. Let's pray. Our Father and God, we are enamored by your infinite wisdom, by your precious Son, by your gracious disposition towards us. We confess this day that we do not deserve your grace, mercy, and love. We deserve far worse than what we experience right now. Father, we intercede on behalf of our wayward nation. We stand in the gap and declare to you this day that we have indeed broken your covenant, trampled upon your law and commands, and committed iniquity beyond comprehension. We confess our blood guilt and ask, Lord Jesus, that you would forgive us. Forgive us for murdering children in the womb each day. Forgive us for refusing to educate our own children in your perfect instruction, but instead passing them off like they're a burden to manage instead of children to train for war. Forgive us for allowing politicians to do all the work while we sit on our tough and get fat off the state. Forgive us, Father, for our sins. Help us by your Spirit to walk in obedience to you. We desire what you desire, Lord, and that is for your name to be acknowledged, worshipped, and glorified in all the nations, including this nation. So strengthen us today, we pray. In Christ's holy name, I pray. Amen. Amen.